It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. This episode is brought to you by Hyperice, the leader in advanced warm-up and recovery technology. They have tons of innovative products, like Venom-heated wearables to help soothe sore back muscles, Normatec compression boots to speed up recovery and increase circulation, and Hypervolt massage guns to improve mobility. Loved by athletes like Naomi Osaka and Erling Holland. Try them yourself. Get 10% off your order with the code MOVE at hyperrice.com. As I told you on Twitter, I'm finally doing something about my weight and my health. I found a solution for weight loss, and it's Awaken 180. My friends in the media told me about Awaken 180. It's their go-to program to lose weight without killing yourself in the gym or taking any kind of medication. Just listen to the success stories. My boy, Kyle Draper, he dropped 30 pounds. Andy Grish dropped 105. And that's not it. Scott Zolak, Steve Logan, Dan Reeves, Dr. Laura R. Carmen, and add Cedric Maxwell to the list. It's only been about three weeks and I've already dropped about 15 pounds. Turn these trying times into a reason to get healthy like me. Call Awaken. Receive the same one-on-one coaching I'm getting at home or on Skype. Also access 1,000 recipes and tools you need to weight loss from the company who has revolutionized the weight loss industry. Set up your first consultation today at Awaken180WeightLoss.com. Welcome once again, one and all. This is Red Sox Beat. This is Josh Lewin, and this is CLNS Media doing a really nice thing, having this Red Sox podcast continue, even though there is technically no Red Sox baseball right now. We're going to give you a quick update on everything that we're hearing about the resumption of the baseball season. By the time you listen to this, you might have different information than I do, but I thought we'd just kind of sweep through that. And then get right to Dr. Charles Steinberg, DDS. Fascinating guy who you guys probably know a little bit about anyway. I got to know Charles uh, during our time together in the Orioles organization, but uh, he's going to walk us through everything from Interesting people he has met in his Dodgers and Red Sox and Orioles time. Uh, Some good Earl Weaver stories, uh, even a Rob Reiner story in there. And uh, we'll get to to all of that. But mostly, I want him to update everybody on what's going on with the AAA situation. Because as you, I'm sure, know, uh, the Pawtucket Red Sox, which was such a a wonderful staple at McCoy Stadium for so long, they're they're moving. They're going to, to Worcester going to central Massachusetts, and we could do an entire podcast unpacking that. Uh, To all the Rhode Islanders listening, I get it. I really do. As as someone who came in with the Rochester Red Wings for years and years and years, and of course Rochester was a team that played the the Sox, the Paw Sox, in the 33-inning game back in 1981, all of that. Uh, I was a little kid then. I, I don't really remember much of that other than reading it in the Rochester Democrat and Chronicle and and following all the coverage that came out of it. But Having worked for the Rochester Red Wings years later, believe me, uh, many summer nights spent 
uh, walking near that uh, ground round, uh, near the Howard Johnsons, uh, near Mr. Tuck's, going over the, that little bridge and, and coming up to that parking lot at McCoy before it was renovated, by the way. This is when the capacity was about 6,000. But from Ben Mondor, may he rest in peace, to Mike Tamboro, to Lou Schweckheimer, to Bill Wanless. I mean, everybody that, that basically stayed there forever. Uh, you, you always felt welcome at McCoy Stadium. I know it's not going to be easy to pack up and go somewhere else, but we're going to talk to Charles about that exact process. And whether or not he can round up uh, Pat Dodson and uh, Mike Trujillo and Mike Tordosky, just to to name some people that come randomly to mind in Pawtucket uniforms. Let's um, give you very quickly the update before I get back to Charles on, on what we're hearing right now about the Boston Red Sox getting back to business. And, and look, the, the key word here is flexibility, right? I mean, it's safety first. And in order to keep everybody safe, we've all got to be flexible here. You, you can't put anything in stone. Everything's got to be pencil drawn right now. But uh, there is an expectation that everybody's going to try. That hopefully the players and owners can play nice and, and not be dorks and figure out how to do 80 games here. There will probably be some givebacks from the players. I, I hope that uh, is something everyone can agree on. I hope the owners don't cry and cry and cry about, oh, we're going to lose money this year. Well, you know what? We're all losing money this year. I mean, every single one of us is losing money this year. The, the virus is going to make this decision for us, guys. That's the, the quote from Dr. Fauci himself, and, and that's what we need to remember here. So uh, we're all trying to stay patient. We're all trying to, to stay in a, a place where we're not just uh, you know, going crazy here. Some of us are, are grieving. It's just such an unusual, horrible time. But hopefully baseball will be back before too long. So kind of on that tack, I mean, trying to stay positive. I don't know of a more positive guy than Dr. Charles Steinberg. He was named the, the Paw Sox president back in 2015, but basically that was kind of a, an assignment. He was an executive vice president for, for the Red Sox for a while, but it worked for the Orioles and Padres and Dodgers and for the commissioner, for Bud Selig. Most of his professional life, he's been tied in with Larry Lucchino. And to me, when you think of all the good things that the Lucchino slash Henry uh, Werner era has ushered in. I mean, a lot of the, the detail stuff, that's been Charles. I mean, talking about the creating and writing of ceremonies at Fenway Park, uh, you know, the retired numbers, every time there's a statue, uh, when they, they did the ceremonial signing of, of Pete Freights, uh, you know, the, the Fenway traditions now that we just take for granted, the, the going gold to raise awareness for childhood cancer. And, uh, you know, all the Jimmy Fund stuff that, that is just going great guns right now. And, uh, I, I mean, you could go on and on with, with all the, the wonderful things that, that they're able to do at Fenway just to, to be good people, basically. You know, I mean, the, the Fenway ambassadors, and, and every time that they, uh, that they announce uh, a Red Sox player from the past and kind of shop them around the stadium a little bit. That's all Charles. He, I mean, he, he, that's what he lives for. He is an ambassador of the highest order, community outreach guy. And, and whether it's been Baltimore, San Diego, Boston, and now Pawtucket and Worcester, uh, it's just such a, a magical guy in terms of wanting to bring people and baseball close together. And I think that in these times that we're in, that's just huge. So uh, we'll get to Charles in just a moment. Want to do the one quick uh, commercial read that, that I, I'm happy to do because, again, as we try to just amuse ourselves and stay normal here, 
with nothing going on on field right now, we're, we're very happy to tell you once again about Bet Online BOL, because uh, they're still, still an exclusive partner here. And they're trying to partner with, with as many people as they can right now just to, to give you something to do, something fun. Hundreds of events that they have found out that, that we're still able to, to shop and, and get you here. If you're in entertainment betting, you can still bet on Survivor and Big Brother and American Idol. You can bet on stock prices. You can bet on the Nathan's Hot Dog Eating Contest. And so all of this is open 24 hours a day. It's all online. It's all very simple, all very, very fun. So go to the website, use your mobile device, join the day to receive your new welcome bonus. So they're happy to do that for you. Bet online, your online wagering solution. So let me bring on Charles Steinberg, and, and he is indeed Charles Steinberg DDS. He went to dental school kind of concurrently with getting going in baseball, was of all things a, the Orioles team dentist for a little while, while he was helping Earl Weaver with his matchups when they'd, they'd come into Fenway. I mean, again, one of the most eclectic baseball people that I, I've ever known. The quality of this interview is not perfect. Did it over the phone instead of on Skype. Charles is very old school. I think we're, we're two people that still have AOL addresses somewhere. I don't apologize for that. I, I don't think Charles will either. But uh, a lot of interesting stuff to talk about, so let's get right to it. Here's the interview with the good doctor, Charles Steinberg, DDS. So without any further ado on this, unfortunately, the, the day we learn of the great Jerry Stiller's passing, uh, I bring that up only because I always thought that that could be the guy that plays Dr. Charles Steinberg in the movie adaptation. And here, I know, I laugh, clown, laugh. I'm going to get you to laugh, even though we mourn the passing of someone today. Uh, Charles Steinberg, who I've already, uh, I've gone through your bio, so we don't have to do this. Uh, I'm just now bringing you on to chuckle and chortle. And I guess on your wall of fame, I would have guessed you probably would have come in contact with Jerry Filler at some point. Is he not on your personal wall of fame? He, I have, I never did have the pleasure of meeting him, and uh, baseball has allowed uh, so many of us to meet so many people who have entertained us and who have uh, pleased us, um, and and I've met my fair share. But no, I, I never got to meet uh, Jerry Stiller. But I go back to childhood on uh, on the Ed Sullivan show when uh, his, um, I believe, late wife Ann Mira uh, was with him as a comedy team, Stiller and Mira. Uh, so, but of course, um, his, his fame on Seinfeld really may have been the uh, the pinnacle for for people's awareness of him. He was a great comic. Whether or not Charles finds tinsel distracting, I don't know, and we will not, we will not endeavor to ask these questions going forward. Uh, although I, I will say that uh, I'm surprised to learn, in, in a way, with all the the people you've come in contact with, with apologies to Chico Escuela. Baseball been very, very good to Charles Steinberg. He has so many great people. Your time in L.A., uh, just very quickly, because I want to obviously concentrate on your time in Boston and now Pawtucket and Worcester, but what did that do for you in terms of coming across with uh, countering celebrity and finding out that there were baseball fans uh, under rocks you never would have previously looked? Well, there there were some uh, some friendships uh, built uh, at the time, um, but it, they're very different cultures in L.A. and Boston. Uh, they they maybe couldn't be more uh, different because when when a celebrity would come to Fenway Park, they knew they were on. They knew they were uh, in their entertainment mode. Uh, they knew they were being photographed. They knew they were going to be interviewed. 
uh, and that's their work uh, as well as their passion. In Los Angeles, you often got them when they were exhaling, when they were sighing in the privacy of their neighborhoods or even at Dodger Stadium when they just wanted to go to the ball game with their family. Uh, so um, it was a, a different kind of um, of culture. But uh, you know, one of the uh, more enjoyable moments uh, in Los Angeles uh, was um, having a 16-year-old uh, intern who, like you, uh, wanted to be uh, a, a play-by-play announcer and, like you, um, was given a chance to simply sit uh, in a booth with a, a tape recorder. And um, when Jake Reiner got his career started, uh, his dad, Rob Reiner, would sit mm-hmm. and do color commentary with him. So for, for Rob Reiner to be sitting in your office and, you know, you're looking at the director of so many great movies, you know, including When Harry Met Sally, and you're looking at Meathead from All in the Family, um, you know, you get starstruck. You know, I, I don't pretend not to, um, but really you get to thank them. You get to thank them uh, because when you're on television uh, for uh, doing a, a sitcom or when you're directing a movie, the audience uh, doesn't necessarily have the intimate relationship that, say, a baseball player has uh, when you can hear fans uh, give their messages of love, as they consistently do. But the um, So you, when you actually get to thank someone, uh, for the contributions that they've made, the enhancements they've made to your life, the funny moments that you can recall or the touching scenes. Uh, you know, that, that's, that's very gratifying. Uh, but, um, uh, but I, I wouldn't say that there was, uh, an abundance of interaction with celebrities in LA relative to Boston because it seemed as though the celebrities from LA wanted to come to Boston to be at Fenway Park. Uh, in fact, that was the first time uh, that I had met uh, Rob Reiner. Uh, it was before hmm. L.A. Uh, he came and brought his then 13-year-old son uh, for his bar mitzvah uh, to to Fenway Park, and Larry Lucchino and I uh, had a nice chat with him then. So uh, really in, in Los Angeles, it was a, uh, a reacquaintance. So I, I wouldn't actually put L.A. ahead of Boston as far as a star-studded city because – the the stars want to come to Boston. They just happen to live um, in that 30-mile zone, which is abbreviated, of course, TMZ. <laughs> so in terms of the, the celebrities that, that have rolled through Fenway, uh, and obviously you were very fortunate enough to be there when things were, were really taking off. I mean, for, for those who don't remember, Charles arrived when the Red Sox really didn't need a, a cleaning and a scrubbing. PR-wise, and just when they got done with all the scrubbing bubbles, here comes 2004, and then there's 2007, and on and on. So when when it tilted, Charles, I'm just curious as to to what the uh, the, the prevailing zeitgeist was. I mean, when you felt like there was that real tip, where now you're not dragging people to Fenway and apologizing for things, but rather you're celebrating every tiny little thing that just happens to pop up in a season. Well, I think that we came in with great enthusiasm, uh, partly um, for the same reason that that so many were distrusted. 
we were the outsiders. You know, I wasn't born and raised in, in Boston. I didn't think it was my birthright to work for the Boston Red Sox. Instead, uh, John Henry, Tom Werner, Larry Lucchino, uh, and I, and I don't put myself with them. They were the owners of the club, but we had watched the, the Boston Red Sox from afar. We had watched Fenway Park like it was its own TV star. And I think that we just came in, uh, with unbridled enthusiasm, believing that it could be so much more. I'll take you back to our days with the Baltimore Orioles um, in 1992 or three. I remember a conversation with Larry Lucchino. We had not yet even contemplated moving to San Diego, much less coming to, to Boston. And, and you know, the Red Sox were huge. And Larry said, um, oh, my goodness, they could be so much more. I said, so much more. I said, they draw like 30,000 a game. They're, they're, you know, they're, they, they do great. No, no, no. That franchise could be one of the great franchises in all of the world. It's not performing at its, at its peak. And that was Larry telling me that way back then. So he had a notion of its great potential. Obviously, uh, John Henry and Tom Werner did too. So when we came in, um, we weren't worried by the um, the changes that we were going to be uh, bringing about. Uh, I know that um, I, I wasn't necessarily a fan of the following when I was young and at the Orioles, um, and that was to have a ceremonial first pitch every game. We thought that should be reserved only for special occasions. That's how we grew up. But... Larry had taught that that one game on a Tuesday night in April might be the only game that this family comes to see and you want to make it special. And sanctifying each game led to live national anthems every day, ceremonial first pitches every day, pregame ceremonies every day. Well, when we got to Boston, uh, we, we, you know, we had been doing this for years in Baltimore and San Diego. When we got to Boston in 2002, the previous year, we were told that the number of ceremonial first pitches in 2001 had been six. <laughs> and so you get the idea of what kind of change we were going to bring about. In other words, I respected their philosophy. It was the same one I grew up with at the Orioles. But we had changed, and the Red Sox had not changed, and we changed it. So... Think of opening day 2002. Now, uh, this was our first opening day, and it was John Henry, the principal owner, who had the relationship with Stephen Tyler of Aerosmith that, that, uh, that brought him to uh, the game to sing. In fact, I remember his, um, his parents, uh, when you – when you uh, recall the memory of Jerry Stiller today, his parents looked either like his father looked either like a blend between Jerry Stiller and Maury Amsterdam, and his mother looked like Rosemarie. And they had been entertainers themselves. You know, they're both diminutive, smiling. I, I said, "Did you know your son was going to be this rock star? He was always very talented." You know, they said it, it was. They're a great moment. But that was John Henry uh, who who uh, really got that started. 
I got to ask you, Charles, since we kind of wandered unwittingly here into ceremony talk, one of the, the things I love hearing from you is recounting how sometimes you got to be strategic with first pitches and things like that. And I never tire of hearing you tell the, the story uh, of, of how you, you got people to not boo the hell out of Wally the Green Monster. Because <laughs> I, I, I think it's brilliant. Because now Wally is just, you know, he's Wally and everybody gets it. But do me a favor, take me back and, yes. and tell me how you, how you navigated that. Well, you know, we arrived in Boston in 2002. We were approaching our first opening day. And I had uh, orchestrated and written uh, opening days um, going back to the 1970s. And um, I'm, I'm, you know, writing it up. And I said to um, my friend and colleague who had been with the Red Sox many years, Larry Canbro, I, uh, I said, so do we introduce uh, Wally the Green Monster on opening day? Oh, no. No, no, no. Don't mention him. He gets booed. And And Larry went on to explain to me, that when uh, Wally had been created in 1997, uh, you know, a lot of fans took offense that the traditional Boston Red Sox, who should have all of their energies focused on winning their first World Series since 1918, had you know uh, deviated and taken the time to create a monster that you know the the or mascot. The the fans, uh, he explained, had reacted negatively. Well, I understood that because if you don't tell a hard scrabble New Englander who's been dying with this team that uh, oh by the way here's here's a, a monster who came out of the wall <laughs> and uh, now everything is okay. So I understood that. But but you've got to regenerate the fans in this game. You've got to take care of the children. We wax nostalgic about childhood memories at the ball game, but they're only nostalgic if you experienced them at an earlier time. Otherwise, they're historic. They don't involve you. But if they're nostalgic, you've got to give the children a great time. And children love mascots unless they're taught in Boston not to. And so uh, what I did was I thought, Wally the Green Monster is an asset. He may be an underperforming asset, and he may be sequestered. And so what I wrote in the ceremony was, and now the best friend of all the children at Fenway Park, Wally the Green Monster. Well, I'm sorry, you can't boo the best friend of children. And by casting Wally as a friend to children, you may have gotten some of the vocal... I'll say skeptics rather than cynics, uh, to pipe down and let the children have their friend. Well, by 2003, we were very exciting. And by 2004, you know, we, of course, uh, you know, had the wonderful world championship ending uh, the drought. And, you know, by then, Wally's a rock star. Nobody, nobody minded Wally if you were winning the World Series. And uh, and meanwhile, the children were growing up loving him. And um, a fellow named Chris Bergstrom uh, from Worcester, by the way, um, was really putting his heart and soul into the development of the warm and friendly character of Wally. Uh, he really, really um, uh, devoted and dedicated himself to it. And uh, the the cheerfulness, the movements, the coolness, uh, the autographs, the the um, 
uh, you know, degree to which uh, he was everywhere, uh, really, really started to soar. Uh, so uh, while he had come out of the wall, now he came out of his shell. <laughs> so on the subject of dedicated and devoted, let me switch tracks here as, ironically, today, I mean, we're talking about when the city manager in Worcester comes out and says, okay, we will talk about, and, and obviously it's not just him. I mean, he's now got a, a directive that we can, can hit the restart button on construction at Polar Park. So tell me, as a guy who's not there and staring at it, my, my guess is this was supposed to be a wonderful, cheerful goodbye season at McCoy in Pawtucket while promising the citizenry of Pawtucket, hey, look, where we're still part of the community, we'll be back to, to say hello and, and, and invest in the community where we're still – uh, a big part of that, but we're, we're trucking down the road to, to open Polar Park and, and, and really grow central Massachusetts here. It was all supposed to be a, a beautiful handing off of the baton, and here comes COVID-19. So tell me, I guess, kind of uh, on-field and off-field, if you will, Charles, where all that stands. Well, there is still more that we don't know than we know, so we have to be careful not to let our dreams become uh Stated uh, plans because we're, we're short of that. We had imagined that 2020 would be a season-long uh, uh, series of sentimental moments where you could celebrate the memories of McCoy Stadium. Uh, this is the 50th anniversary this year of Paw Sox baseball. Uh, it started in Double A uh, with the Red Sox in 1970 later became AAA, but 1970 to 2020 was, you know, a 50-year period, and you tie it in a bow. And, uh, you know, a lot of baseball fans know that the longest game of professional baseball history uh, was that 33-inning game uh, that you are familiar with because of your days with the Rochester Red Wings. Uh, but in 1981, uh, that 33-inning game in Pawtucket against uh, the Orioles Triple A club at that time, the Rochester Red Wings, uh, made history. 33 innings, and there's a whole story and, a, and gorgeous books about it. Read Dan Barry's book and Stephen Krasner's book about it. They're, they're great. But you want to celebrate that. You want to have Dave Koza, who got the game-winning hit, uh, come back. So we uh, assumed that we could do a season-long uh, tribute to um, McCoy and to Paw Sox Baseball, uh, while building Polar Park in Worcester. Both are along the Blackstone River. Both are in the Blackstone Valley. They are one market as defined by minor league baseball. So you're not going too far, even though it's still an emotional jolt uh, to um, Rhode Island loyalists who see that you're crossing the border into Massachusetts. But it's really one market. So now, with, with COVID, you have a delay to your season. You're like, all right, well, we'll still be able to uh, treat 2020 uh, with sentiment. Then you have a delay to construction, and you're starting to wonder, well, is everything going to shift a year? And you might still have it, um, and you just don't know. Well, now, with today's news, that uh, some construction projects in Worcester can resume, you have the uh, resuscitation of this construction project, but you don't know yet what the rate 
of construction will be because you have to take new measures to uh, make sure the construction workers are you know, in, entirely uh, healthy and safe. So you still don't know what the impact of the construction hiatus and rate of construction will be. And so you don't know yet uh, when we're talking about um, for timelines for the uh, sunset on Paw Sox baseball and the sunrise on Woo Sox baseball. That we still have to see. On Woo Sox baseball, and by the way, I can only imagine the merchandise is already flying off the shelves internationally. It's just so brilliant. The branding of it, the, the logo, all of it, the tying in the, the hearts. I mean, it's just fantastic. So I, I know you have to temper this. We, we temper everything in the times that we're in. I mean, it, it almost makes it sound like we're insensitive if we get excited about anything. But if you close your eyes and, you know, here's a vaccine and, and the ballpark is open, give me a little taste of what you envision a summer night in, in Worcester to be. Well, it has been a delicious process to uh, dive in to the culture of, of Worcester and Central Mass. And I feel bad a little bit because Worcester fans are Paw Sox fans. They've been coming to Pawtucket for these 50 years. Again, minor league baseball defines it as one market. That's why you have not had two minor league teams, one in uh, in Worcester and one in Pawtucket, uh, simultaneously in organized baseball. So um, I feel bad that only lately did we really dive into the culture of Worcester. But it's one um, that well, you, what you learn in, immediately is that the heart, the symbol of a heart, is ubiquitous. And you recognize that maybe there are at least three reasons that it's so valid. One, uh, back in 1848 when Worcester went from being a town to being a city, uh, they uh, declared themselves the heart of the Commonwealth. So they were the, a transportation hub. Uh, they are centrally located in, in Massachusetts. But also, right around that same time, um, in Worcester, the commercial Valentine uh, was invented. Um, but really, the third reason is the most um, tactile reason. You can feel, you can touch and feel the compassion of this city. It is a city with a heart. Uh, they've had tragedy with firefighters. Uh, other tragedies too, but losing the Worcester Six uh, in 1999 ripped ripped this city. And if you're from Worcester, everybody knows and everybody was affected. Um, other firefighters have been lost since, uh, including uh, recently. And so, but how this city reacts to heartbreak is heartwarming. It's a remarkably uh, passionate and compassionate city. So the heart is the ubiquitous symbol, and that's why we wanted that in the logo. Also, go back to November 22, 1963. President Kennedy is assassinated. The world mourns. Uh, the nation mourns. And in this spirit of melancholy, there was an insurance company in Worcester uh, that 
knew that spirits were low, uh, and I think whatever they were going to do from a business standpoint, a merger or something like that, prompted the head of the insurance company to ask their ad agency, can you do something to lift spirits? And they went to an artist uh, at the ad agency, a gentleman named Harvey Ball, B-A-L-L, and he sat down at his drawing table and he drew a circular yellow ball, a circular uh, a circle that was yellow, put a smile on it, realized, however, that if he turned it upside down, it would be a frown, drew two eyes, one a little bit bigger than the other, and that was when and that was how the smiley face was invented in Worcester in, hmm. uh, as you might think, late December 63. It came out in January of 64, and it became ubiquitous as well. So everybody knows the smiley face, um, and everybody, you know, uh, since the Tin Man understands a heart. So um, those were the two big visual symbols uh, that Worcester has as great points of pride. So on a summer night in in Worcester, you can imagine looking at that left field and right field foul pole and seeing a smiley face on top. You can look uh, out um, on Summit Street, which to you is like um, Jersey Street at Fenway Park or the Utah Street Corridor at Camden Yards. You're looking at Summit Street where there's a big heart-shaped clock. Uh, so you are going to feel like you're in Worcester. Uh, that's essential. We may, may even have uh, heart-shaped lights in the light towers. We'll see. But hmm. uh, the key to Worcester, the most important word in Worcester seems to be Worcester. The second most important word seems to be local. Uh, when you go there, it, it cannot be generic. It cannot be ordinary. It has to look and feel and smell and taste like Worcester. And that's been Larry Lucchino's passion, Janet Murray Smith's passion, um, and for me, it's hearing the people at, um, gosh, what have we done? Nearly 20 fan plan meetings. We've garnered more than 800 ideas. And, boy, are there some consistent themes uh, that, that come out. It's a place for Worcester to come together and celebrate a beautiful community. I'll tie it in with one last Jerry uh, Seinfeld show, Jerry Spiller quote, when he was – uh, with the maestro uh, trying to, to figure out that billiards room. They call this the place to be. And uh, I think that's probably what, what this ballpark is going to be, too. Be the place yes. to be. And and, uh, and I, I love what you guys are thinking and doing. Uh, we could go on and on, Charles. I, we're, we're running short of time on the podcast. I'm going to try to do what I always say I'm going to do with you, which is say, hey, let's get together and, and talk more later. And then it seems like eight years later we do it again. Uh, let's try for more like eight weeks because what I'd love to do is update Red Sox fans on what we know when we know more about the virus, which really, I mean, let's face it, is not going to be until the summer, and, and that I'm sure will drive a lot of what happens regarding the construction and, and everything else. Uh, before you go, I just say, give me one quick Earl Weaver story. It could be anyone, but for, the, for those that don't know, and I, I mentioned this in Charles's bio coming on, but, but I mean, this guy. Uh, we were so tied in with one of the great entertaining baseball people uh, of my generation growing up. So in, in the, I don't know, 90 seconds we have left, yeah, I got one it. random Earl Weaver story. 
Earl Earl marched into my office. It wasn't really an office. I had a a little uh, slack, you know, a half a desk where I would do his statistics uh, in a blue medium point big pen. And um, Earl marched in, threw the stats down. Is this right? And it was we were about to play the Boston Red Sox, and um, the question was, had Lee May really done? that poorly against Louis Tiant. And it was something like uh, the stats were that, that Lee May was like three for 31 with no home runs and I'll say 17 strikeouts, you know, exaggeratedly poor performance, no home runs. Um, and so I run back and we, you, know, you do it by hand. We had all the score sheets of all, all the games. Go back and recalculate, recalculate. I go and I, I see Earl in the dugout, media's around, and said, yes, that is right. Okay. And so that moved Lee May down, I think, to sixth in the batting order. Now, 20 years later, 20 years later, more than 20 years later, who knew that I would ever get to work for the Boston Red Sox? Who knew that I would ever get to meet El Tiante? And on a bus, a team bus, I told Louis Tiant that story. And Tiant says to me in his you know, wonderful accent, you know why he didn't believe those stats? I said, why? He said, we're at Fenway Park. One day, third inning, Lee May gets a home run over the wall, over the screen. I said, what? He goes, next inning, it rained. It rained, rained, rained. No game, no stats. He never hit the home run. He said, but Earl remembered that. <laughs> only guy that? that could call, only guy that could call bullshit on Charles Steinberg, and it has to involve something like that because he's right about everything else. But you had no way of knowing. Isn't that amazing? The the stats, you know, really, if you went and found the the score sheet from a game that retroactively didn't exist. Right, you would see that he that he hit that home run, but I thought it was amazing that Tiant remembered it, and uh, and that that's what was causing Earl's suspicion. Um, but wow. uh, Earl, Earl was great; he was that great. Is, and there are a thousand Earl Weaver stories. Well, and, and one quick Baltimore tie-in because of another passing of late, unfortunately, the great Al Kaline. He always knew yeah. that in Baltimore, his hometown of all things, he had a home run just like that. Rained out, didn't count. So famously, he ended with the 399. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. See, I educate you, you educate me, and the world turns. That's how it's supposed to be. And he had his 3,000 hit in his hometown in Baltimore. Yes, he did. See, this is why we could do like we could do like a nine-hour podcast. But alas, I got to wrap it up. Charles Steinberg, DDS, has been our guest. We'll bring him back. I promise. Thank you, everybody, for listening. And once again, thanks to CLNS for making this thing possible. And uh, do tune in.